This morning's message is going to be a little bit unusual, um, and what's going to be so unusual about it is that we're going to stick to business as usual. Um, that is, we have been uh, working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and so this morning, rather than looking directly at the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus as we would normally do on Easter Sunday, today we're simply going to stick with our plan of working our way through Luke And we find ourselves today in the midst of the fifth chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 5. And we are going to be reading the story of a paralyzed man and his four faithful friends and a miraculous encounter that they all had with the Lord Jesus. So it's not exactly the Easter story, but I think that you'll find that this story of new life is going to be quite apropos on an occasion such as this. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Verse 17, and I'll invite you to follow along with me silently, and I'll read aloud down through verse 26. Luke 5:17 through 26. One day he, Jesus, was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins have been forgiven you, or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up. And pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God and they were filled with fear saying, We have seen remarkable things today. Father, we don't need to be let down through the roof tiles in front of Jesus, but rather we need our gaze this morning to be lifted up and for you to bring us up and set us in front of Jesus. So for these few moments together, take our minds off of the things of this world and allow us to carry the burdens of this world and set them at Jesus' feet so that we can set ourselves in front of him as this man was and benefit from his mercy. Speak to us now, we pray, on behalf of your son and because of your son. We pray in his name. Amen. What I'd like to do this morning is simply to walk through this passage and try to unfold for you what's happening and what it means for us, just a verse or two at a time. And I think you'll find that this story has something to say to each of you, to everyone in this room, myself included. Whether you're an Easter guest 
this morning, a friend or a family member, maybe someone who just came in this morning, or whether you're a regular attender, a member of this church, I think the Lord has something to say to you from these verses. So we'll just walk through them and see what he says. And we'll begin in verse 17. Read it again with me. One day he, Jesus, was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Now these men, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, are going to be important later in the story because they're going to be the ones that are poking Jesus in the side and asking him questions and doubting everything that he says. In fact, throughout the book of Luke, throughout the Gospels, you find that these men are Jesus' constant antagonists, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. But this is the first time we've encountered them as we've walked through the book of Luke, so we might do well to pause here and ask, what is a Pharisee and who were these teachers of the law? What were these men like? What did they believe? How did they live? Who were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? Well, to be brief, if we read on in the book of Luke and and found out more about them and painted a biographical sort of sketch of them, what we would find is that these men were the great religious high and mighties of their day. These were the fellows who had all their religious ducks in a row, or at least so they thought they had all their religious ducks in a row. These were men who were so proud of themselves religiously, so self-satisfied that they weren't really sure that God needed or wanted anyone else but them. They looked down on people who didn't dress like them, who didn't talk like them, who didn't know their religious lingo, who didn't hang out with them. That's the kind of men these were. And Jesus threw them for a loop, and that's why they're always so upset with him. You can get a glimpse of these men in a classic caricature that Jesus paints of them in Luke chapter 18. Let me just read it to you, and you can write down in your notes if you want to look it up on your own. But in Luke 18, 9 through 12, listen to this caricature that Jesus paints of these Pharisees and teachers of the law. He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, praying to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. A man stands and prays to himself as though he's praying to God and basically just recounts how great he is and how bad others are. That's what these men were like. A group of men who thought that God loved them and God loved only them because they were so wonderful. A group of men who probably wouldn't have enjoyed Easter Sunday very much. They would have said to themselves, what a hassle all this is. All these strangers coming into the building, people that we don't know. We've done all this work to kind of get the building ready and get the the grounds spruced up for the spring. I just prefer to just do things like normal, have our little group, do our thing, and be done with it. This is the kind of men we're dealing with here. The kind of men Jesus is dealing with. But I have to wonder if we're dealing with them ourselves. I have to wonder if there's anyone like this in the room this morning. I hope not. I'm speaking here mainly to those of you who are here every week. Listen to me. These cranky fellows were all over the place in Jesus' ministry. 
So it's not beyond the realm of possibility that they would be attaching themselves today like barnacles onto 21st century churches as well. Wherever the religious action is, that's where these men gather because they think they're religious and they think they're godly. This is what they do. Religion is their habit. Religion is the name of their game. But they don't love Christ. They don't look like Christ. They don't trust Christ. They don't see any need for Christ. They've got it all figured out themselves. They're so wonderful. And all of us who are here week to week or who are in church week to week need to take a stern warning from their example. We need to make sure that we're more like the friends in verse 18 than the Pharisees in verse 17. Now, speaking of those friends, that's what the story is really about. Jesus interacting with a paralyzed man and his friends. And what an amazing story it is that we find unfolding beginning there in verse 18. Some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. As I think about it, I think to myself, what an amazing portrait this would make if you were a painter. Four men on their hands and knees on top of someone's roof, scraping through the mud and tile ceiling of this house, little bits and pieces falling down on the crowd, everyone looking and going, what are they doing? And they're doing it all because their buddy is paralyzed as a result perhaps of some accident or maybe he was born this way. But this friend of theirs can't walk. And there's so many people crowded around the house and in the house that they can't get him in. And so they climb up on the roof and they tear a hole in the roof to drop him down in front of Jesus to get the help that he needs. It's amazing. They knew that if they could just get him to Jesus, all would be well. If they could just lower him down in front of Jesus, all would be right again. And again, I wonder if there are four people like that in this room this morning. Four people who are willing to do whatever it takes to get a friend or a family member or a loved one in front of Jesus. Knowing if I can just get them there, he will work and all will be well. I pray and believe that there are many more people like that. And the reason why I believe that is because there are so many of you who are guests this morning. And I want to pause if you're a guest now and address you specifically. And I want to say to you that most of you who are guests this morning are here today because you have a friend like these men. You're here today because you have a friend or a family member who has been down on his knees or down on her knees, not digging through a roof, but prying a hole in the ceiling of heaven through their prayers, praying for you, trying with all the might that God has given them to get you to Jesus. They've been praying for you, hoping for you, inviting you, and now you're here. You have a friend who wants you and has wanted you to be in front of Jesus. And here you are, not in front of Jesus, but in front of me, but with the hope that as we open his word, that Jesus will show up and show himself to you. They didn't bring you to church this morning, to this church, to hear the greatest preacher or the the best music or to meet the coolest people. If they were trying to do any of those things, they would have been at some other church probably today. But their hope... Their hope was simply to get you in front of Jesus, to allow you to hear from him and to hear of him 
and to be changed and helped and encouraged and forgiven by him. Why does your friend want that for you? Not because they're like the Pharisees who think they have it all figured out, but your friend has wanted you in front of Jesus and has brought you this morning because your friend knows how badly he or she needs Jesus. Your friend knows how much he or she has been forgiven. And your friend knows the peace and the contentment and the freedom and the help that Jesus alone gives. And your friend loves you and wants you to know all of those things as well. We discovered all those things ourselves. Those of us who are believers this morning, we discovered all those things ourselves and we want them for you. And the reason we discovered them ourselves is because someone brought us somewhere along the line to sit in front of Jesus, a parent, a friend, a co-worker, whoever it may have been. And we want to do that for you. So welcome this morning. Welcome to Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church, but more important than that, welcome to Jesus, the Savior. Let's go on and read verse 20, the most important sentence in this entire story. The friends bring him to Jesus. They drop him through the roof. He's paralyzed. They want him to be healed. And Jesus says to them the most important words in this story. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, Your sins are forgiven you. I say that's the most important sentence in this story because it reveals Jesus' priorities for this man, this paralyzed man. We would look at this man and we'd say, I can see the priorities. He's paralyzed. Make him walk. But Jesus' response reveals that Jesus had a slightly different priority. Think it out. Jesus is in the middle of his sermon and all of a sudden the roof starts to crumble around him. I think if that happened to me this morning, I'd probably stop just like he stopped and look at what's going on. And he stops and he looks at what's going on. He pauses in the middle of his sermon and watches this scene unfold. And a man drops through the ceiling. He's obviously paralyzed. There are four ropes hanging from both sides. He's probably looking at Jesus from the side but can't move at all. And there lays in front of Jesus a quadriplegic. And the friend's intent was clear, wasn't it? They didn't have to say anything to Jesus. Their actions made it clear that they were crying out to to him, Jesus, you're the miracle worker. You are the one who can heal him. Make our friend walk again. And it's an important request and one that we don't overlook. But notice Jesus' response. What does Jesus say to them? Son, friend, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, yes, Jesus is going to go on and heal the man. And we we don't miss that. But can you see Jesus' priorities here for this man and for us? What was most important to Jesus was not that his limbs were freed up, but that his sins were forgiven. And that's what's most important to Jesus for you this morning. All of us come in with all sorts of things going on in our lives. I don't know half of them. And Jesus has the ability to fix all of them. But more than all of the things, the earthly things that are troubling you right now, Jesus' priority for me and for you this morning is that our sins be forgiven. If a paralyzed man can lay on the floor in front of Jesus and the first words out of his mouth are not get up and walk, but be forgiven of your sins, and that's significant. His body was not first in importance, but rather his soul 
There's an important lesson. I talk to people often who, who seem to think that being a Christian consists simply of going around and feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and doing good in the community. And Christianity does consist of those things, but those aren't the main things. And those aren't the first things. The first priority of Jesus and of the Christian who brings his friends here is that people would be right with God. Not that all would be right with the world, but that people would be right with God. The main priority of Jesus is not our happiness in this life, but in the next one. The main priority of Jesus is that our sins be forgiven, that our lives be changed from the inside out. And that's why he didn't just go around healing people. He did do that often. But the primary purpose of Jesus coming was not to heal, but to lay down his life. For our sins. And that's what we're on about this morning. That's the goal of Easter Sunday. That's the reason why we invite guests for Easter Sunday. Not just to make new friends and to tell you that we like you, although those things are true. We do like you, and we hope that we make lifelong friendships with you. Some of you already have those happening. But the the primary reason why we're here this morning is to tell as many people as possible that Jesus says... To us who will listen, friends, your sins are forgiven. So I ask you this morning, where you sit, whoever you are, regular attender, first time guest, do you realize that's just for you? Do you realize how much you need God's forgiveness? Let me remind you, you're accountable to this God who Genesis 1-1 created the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth. And that means he created you, too. And he has known you and loved you and carried you since before you even knew who he was. Since before you were born, he has cared for you. And he has given you, Paul says in Acts 17, life and breath and all things. Everything that you have is a gift from Him. And He's designed a way of life for you, a set of commandments that's meant for your good, meant for your joy, meant for your pleasure and your happiness and your holiness. And John, the disciple of Jesus, says His commandments are not burdensome. He's given us a way to live, but it's not burdensome. It's good for us. And yet, I, standing before you this morning, and you sitting in front of me this morning, each and every one of us has done to God what our children do to us what do our children do to us well they think that our boundaries are either uninformed or old-fashioned or too strict or just not right for me right your children ever do that to you you tell them to do something and they roll their eyes at your commands or they huff and puff and they stomp around when you admonish them or they sneak around thinking that you don't know what they're really doing. Or they just outright rebel against you. That's what kids do. And here's a God who's created us, loved us, provided for us in a thousand ways that our parents never dreamed of being able to do. And yet this is what we do to Him. We roll our eyes at His commands. We rebel outright. We sneak around doing things and think He doesn't know. We get all upset when He admonishes us and and somehow sends someone to tell us that we're sinning. We read it already this morning, didn't we? In Isaiah 53. All of us, all of us, like sheep, 
have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Our culture thinks that's a virtue. I I went my own way. It's not a virtue. God loves you, cares for you, and you're a runaway child, and so am I. We've gone our own way. And in doing so, all of us have built up a load of guilt. And worse than guilt, we've built up for ourselves impending judgment. Think this out if you're still not here. The, the biggest thing, the most important thing you can do is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Are you doing that? I'm not. And that's the greatest commandment. And that means the greatest sin is not murder or rape or theft or lying. The greatest sin is simply not loving God with all of your heart. And it includes all those things and it includes lots of other things that we don't think are that big of a deal. R.C. Sproul, a pastor in Florida, reminded me in a book that he wrote about Mark 12:30, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And he says, none of us has done that for even five minutes. Just think out your weekend. Just this weekend. It's not even over yet. But just think out your weekend and you'll recall outbursts of anger or perhaps looks or thoughts of lust, selfish desires, feelings of resentment, times when you knew what you ought to do but you didn't do it, times when you spoke ill of someone, times when you just did what you wanted to do regardless of what it meant to anyone else or what it meant to God. Just think about just the last day and a half and you'll know I have a God who's made me, who loves me, who's provided for me, and yet I've done what my children have done to me, only it's a lot worse because I'm just a human. And when my children sin against me, it hurts me, but I'm just a human like they are. But this is God who made everything and who loves us more than we know. And therefore the verdict is in. I am not, and you are not as spiritually well as we thought we were. We're not. In fact, all of us are in just as bad a shape spiritually as this paralyzed man was physically. doesn't matter how healthy we are, how well-to-do we may be physically, our condition is still the same. Apart from Jesus, all of us are paralyzed under God's judgment. And therefore, all of us have this great burning need to hear him say to us, as he said to this man, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Now this message, friend, your sins are forgiven, and really this whole situation aggravated the Pharisees, these religious high and mighties, to no end, as you can see in verse 21. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's an excellent question. Here's this guy, Jesus. He's a great preacher. He's obviously worked a few miracles, but... Who can forgive sins but God? Answer, no one. It's God against whom we've sinned. And therefore, no one but God has the authority to forgive those sins. And so the Pharisees, in that sense, were right. Only God forgives sins. But notice Jesus' response to their question in verses 22 through 24. Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, 
Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. What was Jesus' response? He didn't argue back at these guys. You don't understand at all. God's not the only one who can forgive sins. I can forgive sins too. That's not what he said, not for a moment, because the Pharisees were right on this point. Only God forgives sins. So how did Jesus combat the Pharisees' skepticism and cold-heartedness? Well, not by trying to disprove their understanding of God, not by saying, well, you don't, you don't understand. God's not the only one who forgives sins. No, he responded simply by proving to them, I am the one you're talking about. I'm God. That's what he's doing here. Look at the exchange again. It's as though the Pharisees are saying to him, all this talk about forgiving of sins, you're just running your mouth, Jesus. Anybody can say that. But you don't have any authority to forgive sins. You can't do that. Only God can do that. And for you to say you can is frankly blasphemy. And so Jesus says to them, if I can paraphrase, you're right. Any shyster with a God complex can come along and say to someone, I absolve you of your sins. And there are people who are doing that today. But Jesus says, though anyone can come along and say that, Shysters can't do this, can they? And he says to the paralytic, I say to you, get up. Pick up your stretcher and go home. And verse 25, immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's saying to the Pharisees, you're right. You're right. Only God can forgive sins. But since I already read your minds in verse 22 and you didn't believe me or recognize me as God then, let me prove to you again now that I'm God in the flesh. Get up, paralyzed man, pick up your stretcher and go home. And he got up and he went home. It's amazing. If any human being comes along and tells you they can absolve you of your sins by some religious merit badge or some ceremony you say well could you go to the hospital with me and make someone rise from the dead or make someone rise up from paralysis then i'll believe you that's what jesus is doing he's saying yeah god forgives sins and i'm him i'm him jesus christ is god incarnate no one else can do what he just did he's god in the flesh And the reason I belabor that this morning is first because Jesus does so in this story. That's the whole point of the story, really. But I also belabor it this morning because I want you to see how important it is that we embrace Jesus as God. That we not be like the Pharisees and miss the boat. I want you to see the importance that Jesus is God himself and to worship him and to receive him as that. And to to do that, let me just give you three words. It may help you. Why is it important that we embrace Jesus as God himself? Three words. Number one, authority. Authority. All this talk about trusting Jesus to save us from our sins. That's what I'm trying to say to you this morning. But if he's to do that, if he's going to forgive you of your sins, he has to be God. For who can forgive sins but God alone? No one. But Jesus, since he is God, has authority to save us from our sins. That's the point of this little skirmish with the Pharisees. He's saying to them, if I can heal this man with no medicine, no magic, and no therapy, then I must be God. And Jesus is saying to them, if I am God, 
then I also have authority to forgive you, verse 24, of your sins. If you want to be forgiven of your sins, you have to have a Jesus who is God in the flesh and has authority to forgive you of your sins. Second word is ability. Ability. It's important that Jesus is God himself because of his ability. It's important that Jesus is God in a way that's very appropriate to Easter weekend. That is, if Jesus were a mere mortal, if he was just like us, he was like us in that he was man, but if he was just like us, if he was only man, if he was merely mortal, then Jesus would have been born like us with a sin nature. And he would have had sins of his own that he had to contend with. For the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every mere mortal has his own sins to contend with. And if Jesus had his own sins to contend with, then Jesus is just as guilty before God as we are. And if Jesus is just as guilty before God as we are, then he would have had to die for his own sins. And if he has to die for his own sins, then he can't be the one who can stand in our place without sins of his own and die for our sins. He had to be God. If Jesus is the God man, and he is, then he's morally perfect and has no sins of his own for which he must die and therefore has ability to stand in our place and to die for our sins. And that's exactly, again, what Isaiah told us in chapter 53, isn't it? All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. That's the message of Easter weekend. That's the message of the cross. The Lord has laid the iniquity, the sin of us all on Jesus. He died for our sins, and thus he is able to say to us, friend, your sins are forgiven. The third word is amazement. Amazement. Understanding that Jesus is God incarnate should amaze you. The God of heaven, the God who made everything and who controls everything, allowed himself to come down and be born in a barnyard in a podunk town in the middle of nowhere? Yes. The creator of heaven and earth left his heavenly home to come and be like one of the created? Yes. The sinless one pitched his tent in this crooked, mixed up, sinful world? Yes. The one and only, the God who gives life to all things, came to earth and endured death on a cross? Yes. 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 This is amazing. God becomes man and dies for you? We have to be amazed. We have to say with the hymn writer, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Two final questions then. One that you might ask me and another that I would ask you. First question, the one you might ask me. Do you really believe this stuff? Do you really believe this stuff? Someone might say, kind of in your mind right now, you're basing all this about Jesus being God himself and forgiving our sins on a 2,000-year-old story about Jesus healing a paralyzed man on the spot. 
I've never seen anybody heal a paralyzed man on the spot. And this book's 2,000 years old. Do you actually believe that really happened? Yes, I do. The book of Luke was written around 60 or 70 A.D., 30 to 40 years after the events themselves happened. And despite the fact that there are are lots of professional skeptics in the world, despite the fact that there are lots of professional people who study the Bible 2,000 years removed from it all and scoff at the reliability of what it says as though they knew better than the people who lived and were eyewitnesses of these things. Despite all of that, the people who lived through it The people who saw Jesus' life and ministry with their own two eyes did not and could not gainsay these miraculous stories. And remember, Jesus was not a very popular fellow in the first century, was he? Not after A.D. 30 or so when he died. They were killing off his disciples left and right. So if the enemies of Jesus could have gone to this little town where Luke 5 happens if they could have gone there and interviewed those people who had been in the crowd that day and proved that this story was all a hoax, then they would have done it. If they could have gone to this little town, remember it's only 30 or 40 years later, most of these people are still alive. If they could have gone there and found the paralyzed man and said, see, you're still laying on your bed, they would have done it. And they would have disproved everything that's written in this account and in all of these accounts about Jesus. Think about it in your own life. If a book came out today claiming that some shop owner in your growing up neighborhood had walked on water, given sight to the blind, healed quadriplegics, resurrected a man from the dead, and then rose from the dead himself, wouldn't you be a little bit surprised if lots of your former neighbors didn't write letters, letters to the editor of the Enquirer or whatever your local hometown paper was and prove that this is all a hoax? I mean, think about it. Just think of that, that, that old man that ran that shop in your neighborhood. What if they said all these things about him? I mean, you'd be the first one lining up, calling someone on the radio, writing to the paper, doing something and saying, that's not true. None of that stuff ever happened. I know that guy. And yet, in Jesus' day, no one was able to write those letters or make those calls. The only way a fanciful story like the one that the Gospels portray about a miracle worker who was born of a virgin and rose from the dead, the only way that those kinds of stories could go unchallenged is if the people who lived through it all actually saw it and knew that it was true. So yes, I believe this stuff. The people in Jesus' own day, even his opponents, all had to admit that these miracles actually happened. There's no first century eyewitness evidence to suggest that anyone was able to gainsay or disprove the factuality of Jesus' healings or his walking on water or most importantly his resurrection from the dead. There's no first century evidence that anyone was able to disprove any of these things. The eyewitnesses all, whether they liked it or not, just had to say, that's what happened. So I believe it's all true. Historical analysis leaves me with no other option. But I also believe that this story and the implication behind it, the forgiveness behind it is true because I know what it is to have been a moral paralytic and to have been healed by Jesus. And some of you do as well.
Some of you may have sin patterns in your life as you were growing up and even now that aren't so obvious to the onlooking world. But in my growing up years, my sin patterns were quite obvious to me and to lots of other people. They were as obvious to me and to other people as these paralytics' dead limbs were to him. I know, and the people I grew up with, and the people I'm around now know, that deep down, I'm rotten. And I'm rotten not so deep down much of the time. But I also know that in 1994, in a church service like this one, I found myself, by a miracle of God, sitting in front of Jesus. Not physically, but as His Word was opened, sitting in front of Him and understanding for the first time how much I needed His forgiveness. And I asked Him in my prayers, and He forgave me. And he is continually forgiving me and changing me. And that's another reason why I believe all this stuff. And that leaves me with a question then for you. What are you going to do with this Jesus? As you're thinking about it, read verse 26 with me. They, the crowds that day, were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, We have seen Remarkable things today. What are you going to leave saying this morning? Maybe out loud to the person next to you in the car, or maybe in the silence of your own conscience. What are you going to leave saying today? What are you going to say about this miracle worker? What are you going to say about this compassionate lover of sinners? What are you going to do with the fact that God became flesh so that He could die for your sins? Some of you may balk at that. Some of you may refuse to believe that it really is true. Or you may refuse to believe that you're that bad and that he's that good. And others of you may try with all of your might, though unsuccessfully, to earn your way back into God's good graces. You say, I realize I am a sinner. I need to be forgiven. And maybe if I just do this and that and the other thing, then God will finally accept me. It will never work. But some of you, Lord willing, will have been truly sitting in front of Jesus this morning. And you will have realized that you're paralyzed and that you need to be forgiven and that on your own you're stuck. And all that will be left for you to do now is to ask and to believe that the Son of Man, verse 24, has authority to forgive your sins.